as we venture into the murky waters of everything you've been told never to bring up at holiday dinner. You'll need a guide, someone you can trust, a battle-tested, common-sense leader who knows that an extra pair of dry socks just might save your life. That wise old sage has arrived, and he is shouting the Schmidt Show battle cry! Schmidt Heads Unite! Uh, for those of you just joining, I forgot to start the recording, so here we are. We're going to be doing an interview <laughs> with uh, with uh, Paul Jones a little bit later on. He's an internationally recognized expert in the uh, in the, uh, the the PHP programming language and and some of this stuff. So um, he is a he's a he's a great guy, and I'm really looking forward to the interview. We're going to be talking with him in a, in a few minutes, but. Um, just to kind of lay the, the groundwork, as I, as I was told all those who were listening live, and now I'm going to repeat myself for those who were listening, uh, and I forgot to start the recording. I started streaming it, but I forgot to start recording. Um, we're, we're talking a little bit about the need to dismiss the myth that minorities and women and, and whatever other population group, just because they are underrepresented in a particular uh, industry does not mean that there is some nefarious uh, reason for that. It may just very well be that a particular people group is not interested in a particular industry. And it's really that simple a lot of times. And so we're going to talk uh, with Paul about some of the contributor code of conduct and, and some of that kind of stuff. And you'll hear me talk with Paul about this down the road. The truth is, uh, if it comes down to my heart surgery, you know, let's just say, and I don't have, I don't have, I'm not sick. I don't need a heart surgery. But if I ever get to a point where I have to have open heart surgery, I don't care if the surgeon's a woman. I don't care if the surgeon is black. I don't care if the surgeon is Asian or Norwegian or German or whatever ethnicity. I could care less. All I want to know is, is the heart surgeon capable of providing w for me the most excellent heart surgery on the market. I want to know that he is the best and that when the surgery is all over, I am still going to be alive and the heart surgery will have been performed to a, an incredibly high level of excellence so I stay healthy longer. And if there is a woman doctor or a minority doctor or a, a white doctor, for that matter, if they aren't as good, I don't care what their ethnicity is. I just want them to be the best heart doctor that is available to do the surgery. It's, it's that simple. And, and the same goes for any industry. I have a friend who owns a flooring company. Um, the company's name is Barefoot Flooring. And she is a fantastic flooring installer. She's, she's one of the best. I've done some construction work, and I, I have a little bit of an insight into to what, um, what it takes to do that job well, and she does it exceptionally well, like beyond most men that I've seen do. Now, she does have some struggles sometimes because she's kind of small, in, in, you know, hauling carpet, giant rolls of carpet around, but she is incredibly gifted and very talented as it relates to doing the actual install work. And when it comes time for me to get flooring done in my home or somewhere else, she's the person I'm going to call. And it has nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. It has everything to do with the fact that she's good at her job, period. That's all there is to it. And, and again, it has nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman and it shouldn't. And, and this is, this is the misunderstanding of so many of these different types of, of codes of conduct and, and quota type things and, and the affirmative action and, and all of that kind of stuff. Because the problem with that, when you when you start talking about affirmative action or the you know the white privilege stuff and all of that kind of stuff, essentially what you're saying is to to a black person trying to get into college, 
when you start talking about affirmative action stuff, it's, it, the affirmative action stuff, essentially what you say is that I know that you aren't capable of getting into college on your own, so we're going to, we're going to lower the bar for you. We know that you're not capable of doing this or accomplishing this or achieving this on your own, so we're going to make it easier for you to get into school, to get into college, to get that job, to, to, to get whatever you need to get. We're going to lower the bar for you. And the same is true with the white privilege stuff. Anytime someone starts talking to you about white privilege, what they're really saying is that we know that black people are just not capable enough or women are not capable enough or some other minority. We know that you're not good enough to be successful on your own. So we have to extend to you some of our privilege in order that you can be successful. That is so highly offensive and, and unbelievably ridiculous that that it it like it like it genuinely gets me irritated like i get like raging mad when people start saying talking about about white privilege or ma- white male privilege or whatever it is i have a daughter who is jo- has joined the national guard and is going through the ROTC program and soon will be commissioned as an officer in the united states army through the the north dakota national guard and I can tell you from personal experience that nobody handed her any privilege to get where she's at. She worked her butt off. She put in a, you know, a full 16-hour course load of school. Teaches, she teaches piano for a local music shop. Teaches 16 or 17 students or whatever it is. I don't know how, what the number is anymore. It's been even more at that point. That she teaches on a regular weekly basis. Plus goes to guard duty every other or once a weekend or one weekend a month. And does all the other things that she does as a, as a college student. And she worked her tail off to get to where she's at. Nobody extended her any privilege. She didn't need me as a white male to offer her anything. None of the the colonels or the captains or the majors or anybody else that work with her, you know, had to give her some sort of of extra hand up that nobody else got. She did it on her own. And so it is highly, highly offensive to suggest that the only reason I'm successful is because of my white privilege, because what that infers is that the only way anyone else can be um, successful is if we extend some of our white privilege to them so they can then be successful too. Or the only way they can be successful is if I, quote-unquote, check my privilege, like give up my privilege at the door, so to speak, which is just as absurd because I don't believe that there is a black man and Asian female, uh, 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 Native American, whatever, transgender, doesn't matter. I don't believe that any of them need any help from me whatsoever to be successful. I believe they are fully capable on their own to succeed in whatever area they so choose to succeed in. And to suggest anything else is offensive and quite honestly racist. And so this is a little bit off the subject, from, uh, off the, the mark from what we're going to talk to Paul Jones about, but that's kind of what we're going to get into with Paul with some of this code of conduct stuff. And, and I wanted to lay that out there before we get to it. I, I didn't plan on talking a lot about the Judge Kavanaugh stuff today uh, just because there's so much garbage around there. Most of us are probably um, tired of hearing all of the, the, the constant 24-hour he said, she said, blah, 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 whatever. Um, I'm not going to get into it this week. I, I might get into it next week because by that point we should have had an, uh, we should have had a vote and and the investigation will be complete. So we'll probably get into that more next week. And I've already talked about this at 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 pretty significant length. The only thing I will say is is as it relates to um, the Kavanaugh thing um, is this 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 other myth as it relates to gender and things like that is that we have to believe all women. Believing all women is just as ridiculous as saying we need to believe all men. 
if if the argument that was being made in favor of Judge Kavanaugh was someone shouting, well, we just need to believe all men that claim they've been falsely accused. If a man's been falsely accused, we just have to believe it because that's a serious charge. That's a serious charge. If you're going to accuse someone of committing felony sexual assault and ruin their lives, that's a very serious charge. And it must be believed. They are victims. They just must, if, they, if they've been accused, we have to believe them that they, that they have been falsely accused if they claim that they've been falsely accused. That's absurd. To, to suggest that all men must be, must be believed just because of the seriousness of the charge and just because they're men is absurd. It is the most ridiculous thing you can imagine. And it is no more ridiculous than saying that all women must be believed because not all women are believable. That's just all there is to it. That's not an affront on, on women. That's not sexism. That's not misogyny. It's just the truth. Not all women are believable or credible. The, the Crystal Gale Mangum who accused the Duke lacrosse players was not believable. She was not credible. She admitted herself, finally, that she was lying. It ended up getting her in legal trouble. There was a woman who accused um, a black man, I can't, Tid, Tid, uh, Tidwell, I can't remember his name, years ago, back in the 40s or whatever it was, of, of inappropriate sexual behavior. She finally came out about five, ten years ago, whatever it was, and recanted her story after the man was killed, was murdered for something he didn't do. So, no, not all women are believable. And not all men are believable. So that's, that's, all, that's all I'm going to say about that this week is the, the, this absurdity that we must believe every story just because of the seriousness of the crime is absurd. It doesn't matter the seriousness of the charge. What matters is the evidence and the reality of the allegations, whether they are true or not. And the evidence that supports that claim. So with that, we're going to get into the interview with, uh, with Paul Jones. Like I said, he's an internationally recognized expert in PHP. Um, he has been working on this stuff with the uh, Contributors Code of Conduct and, and some of the other things. Um, he is kind of recognized as the, um, the go-to guy who's been kind of leading the fight against this Contributor Covenant code of conduct and what it means not only for the tech world but uh for for the rest of us in general so paul thanks for joining me paul welcome to the show uh thanks for joining me this morning um it is my understanding that as the world of technology has begun to evolve and and politics has kind of begun to encroach in nearly every aspect of human life, we're seeing this um, kind of crossroads where the, the, the politics of what we're seeing in Hollywood and, and on the news and all that kind of stuff is kind of beginning to creep into the background of a lot of different um, industries that we thought were kind of, you know, not necessarily devoid of politics, but just as as their industry lives, it's just irrelevant, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. And, and the reason this conversation between you and I has kind of come up is the, the news story that came out that uh, Linus Torvalds, the guy that invented the Linux operating system, essentially, has said, I'm out. I, I don't want to deal with the, the garbage anymore. I'm just, I'm heading out. So why don't you give a little bit of background on that to start, and, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Sure. So my understanding is not that he said he didn't want to deal with the garbage so much anymore. My, my understanding of what has happened is that after several years of being hounded to incorporate a, a code of conduct 
in his what is essentially his project now grant there are lots of other contributors there but it would be nothing without him it would not exist without him right uh, he's been hounded to have this you know, a version of a social justice derived code of conduct put in place and a few years ago he put in what he called the code of conflict uh, which is a, basically a statement of his principles on how we ought to be interacting to make sure that the best possible code gets put into place because there are so many people depend on, on this stuff mm -hmm. uh, and not concentrate on the identities of the people contributing it, but be very harsh about what gets put in because it's the only way to make sure that the good stuff gets put in. Uh, so he didn't get hounded out on that basis. What happened was I, I think he just basically got tired of other people telling him this was necessary, that he's mm. a jerk, that he needs to behave differently. And so he said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back for two weeks. I'm going to go to a, go educate myself on how to treat, treat people better, quote unquote. Uh, and uh, while I'm at it, I'm just going to go ahead and let this contributor covenant code of conduct get put into place. Uh, and so, so, that, so that's the background of what, so, I, what I understand to have happened. So for, for those who don't know what this code of conduct is, as I understand it, this is one of these, there has to be, you know, more women, more minorities, more trans this and trans that involved in in this project, or it's not a legitimate project. Is that is that overstating it or understating it? I don't think that's overstating it. I think it's uh, not. So that's good enough for okay. our purposes today. What I what I will do is I will point out what some of it actually says. Okay. Uh, and and I want to I want you to note that. When it says these things, these things are not themselves objectionable. Uh, the first thing I need to point out is that a code of conduct, as a gener in a general sense, can be either a good thing or a bad thing. Just having a code of conduct in and of itself is not necessarily a problem. The specific one that we're talking about today is something called the Contributor Covenant Code of Conduct, or what, you know, I'll just call it the Covenant or the Contributor Covenant. Right. It opens it, and it's a specifically, explicitly a political document to begin with. The author of it, this person named Coraline Ada Emke, who, who self-describes as, as an intersectional technologist and transgender feminist, uh, has expressly stated the whole point of the code of conduct, the contributor, code of con contributor covenant, is to put a particular kind of politics in place uh, into open source projects. And so the way the way the contributor covenant opens is this, is that it and it says and this is a quote now is that this project is committed to the idea of having I'm quoting now an opening and an open and welcoming environment that is harassment free regardless of age body size disability ethnicity gender identity and expression level of experience nationality personal appearance race religion or sexual identity and orientation. Now, end quote right there. This sounds great, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody would be against these things. Of course, we all want to be open to other people who are contributing code because we don't care about their identity. We right. care about what they're contributing. But I want to point out that there is no protection in that language for ideas or politics mm. or conscience. Uh, in fact, those things are expressly have been expressly, expressly turned down by Coraline. Uh, so the very ideas that we're supposed to be talking about uh, are not themselves a protected thing with un under the covenant. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, this is a, it's a political document, and that's the primary objection here. Uh, I agree that these organizations, these open source projects, have tried to think of themselves as being apolitical. That is, it's not that we have a particular set of politics, it's that we have a particular set of ways in which we're used to interacting, we have a particular goal that is in mind, uh, and so... We think in terms of that goal, not in terms of the politics of the people participating. But the Contributor Covenant explicitly injects those things into the project, thereby poisoning the project. So, and, and that was kind of my next step there, or my next question is, when, when you have someone like Linus Torvalds, or Torvalds, I'm not really entirely certain how to pronounce that. Yeah, neither am I. <laughs> when you have someone like that who, who literally, the, the Linux operating system, as you mentioned, would not exist had it not been for his uh, contribution to the project. You have someone like that being driven out over a, 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 a covenant like this it makes you begin to wonder what other kinds of things and what other advancements in the world, not just in the world of technology, whether it's operating systems on a computer, but in the world of, of medicine, in the world of engineering, in the world of, of 
you know, space exploration, what, are, what kinds of people will be driven out and driven away from a, 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 a potentially world-changing project over something like this? Or am I, am I doomsday thinking there? Well, I don't think you're doomsday thinking. We're actually seeing that happen in, in the uh, in the Linux world right now, and it's not so much that they're they're walking away from it; it's that they are in fact being hounded in some cases. There is a guy named Theodore Tso, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly, <laughs> who uh, in the past has been a, as far as I can, and again, I'm not deeply embedded in the Linux community. I'm getting this. I'm getting this secondhand. Has apparently been a very valuable contributor to uh, to significant portions of the Linux code base. Uh, he helped to reject uh, what is described as a backdoor into the code that was going to be submitted by Intel, if I recall correctly. Mm. There was another person who at the time went, went by the name of Sarah Sharp, who has now changed, the na changed their name to Sage. Uh, at the time, uh, the person putting forth that, that backdoor, uh, this, this Sharp person, uh, had it rejected, and now Sharp is hounding Theodore Tso for being a quote-unquote rape apologist, uh, mm -hmm. for pointing out that you know when we talk about uh, when we talk about women being harassed in in conferences, uh, that maybe it's not as bad as we might be led to think that it is by mm -hmm. by social you know social justice advocates uh, for pointing out numbers on this. Uh, Theodore is being called a rape apologist by by the Sharp person. Um, that itself is a way of getting rid of your political opponents within a project. Uh, and it's, that is what the contributor covenant allows for. And I, I want to be, I want to make a very clear point on this. That's not an abuse of the contributor covenant. The whole point of the contributor covenant is to give cover to people who want to eject their political enemies from a project by using that project mm. as leverage over that person. If you don't toe the line on our political ideas, well, then, you know what? This gives us cover to get rid of you. So you'd better say what we want you to say, or we're going to get rid of you. So one of the people that I follow on uh, on Twitter is a guy named Ian Chung. And Ian he, Miles Chung, yeah, yeah. He's kind of been at, at the forefront of some of these arguments as well. And, and I don't remember how I ended up finding him or how I ended up following him. Um, is... He's he seems to be a little bit more bombastic about some of this stuff than what you are, um, and so I try to kind of temper a little bit of what I hear from him and uh, through that lens. But is is it as bad as he says it is? Because it seems to me, listening to him, the 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 entire tech world is being destroyed by social media or uh, social justice people. So I am not familiar with any specific tweets from him although okay. I know the name I think that the bombast is probably warranted um, social justice has been making a long march through the open source institutions for a long time now uh, my person my involvement started in I believe it was 20 January 2016 but it had been going on before that um, so yeah the, the the idea that social justice is making inroads in a community that is not well known for being socially adept, uh, should come as no surprise looking back on it. But while it's happening, you don't think it's happening. You think these, you know, the social justice thing, oh, we just want everyone to be nice. You know, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with being nice. And they turn around and they start kicking people out. Well, wait a minute, I thought we were going to be nice. Well, now we're in charge. So if you're not nice in the way we want you to be nice, the way we define it as we go, then, you know, we're, we're going to kick you out. Now, so if he's if he's arguing that it's it's a problem, I I agree with him. I think it's a significant problem. So then the, the I also follow several groups on Reddit and and subscribe to several several subreddits on the issue of social justice, and it it seems to me that originally the some of these social justice thought processes were 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 good things. You know, making sure that if if you were mentally disabled or, or physically disabled, you were still able to have access to rent an apartment and, you know, and, and some of those sorts of things and, the, and, 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 and bringing, you know, genuine issues to the forefront. But the, the more I've watched it evolve, especially on, on Reddit, where you see some of the stuff that's not talked about on your cable news networks and, and things like that, it's, it's, um, it's just, it's almost borderline insanity and delusional. I mean, it, 
am I, is it just my right wing bias that's leading me there or, or is it really that bad? Well, just, just, first of all, just because you have a bias doesn't mean it's not accurate. Okay. Uh, that's the first thing we have to remember. Um, the question is, is that bias accurate in terms of the observations that you're making? I think your bias is well-founded in this case. Um, one of the things we have to remember about the social justice movement, especially as a political movement, is that there's a particular set of political tenets in place that drive how they see the world. Uh, we can, and there's this guy named Arnold Kling. He's, a, he's an economist. He talks about what he calls the, the three languages of politics, the three axes on which we make decisions. You know, we, are we concerned about civilization versus barbarism, which would be a typical right-wing sort of way of looking at things or a Republican way of looking at things? Or are we talking about freedom versus coercion? That is, on any activity, does it lean more towards freedom of the individual or coercion of the individual? That's what we might call a libertarian way of looking at things. But the social justice advocate looks at things in terms of the oppressor and the oppressed. Mm. That is, in any interaction between people, who do we identify as the oppressor and who do we identify as the oppressed person? That's what leads us to social justice. All interactions work in all interactions are uh, judged in that way. That's what leads us to social justice. And it turns out that with social justice, it's not just one kind of oppressor and one kind of oppressed person. It's intersectional. What intersectional means, and I won't go into great de de detail on this, it means that there are ever more finely grained ways of oppressing people. Right. So that there's no bottom to any of this. You can always find some way in which there is an oppressor and an oppressed person. And it's not merely individual. It's not just because you did something to somebody. It's, it's class-based and systemic. So that if you are merely a, you know, again, the typical example being, if you are merely a white person, but you have never actually done anything racist to anybody else, that doesn't mean you're not racist, according to the inter according to intersectional theory, because it's part of a system. You as a white person who have an who, because you are a white person, you are racist because that is a system in which you exist. So it doesn't matter if you've never actually done anything. You're racist by definition mm. just because of your skin color. Which, uh, which ironically is racism. The opposite of what we think about. <laughs> right. is, what a normal person <laughs> yeah. would think about as racism. Right. And the follow-on to that is you are now an oppressor just because of your skin color in this case. And we can pick any any identity group that you want, whether it's white, male, cisgendered, heterosexual. If you don't know what half those words mean, that means you're a normal, well-adjusted person. <laughs> what it means is that in this, in the oppressor-oppressed axis, under the social justice way of looking at things, the oppressed are by definition morally superior to the oppressors then. And of course, that's what we would think about as a normal person. An oppressor shouldn't be oppressing so the oppressed are morally superior, but they don't. The social justice person doesn't use that in the same way. The oppressed are morally superior under social justice. So how do, can an oppressor get back any form of moral, uh, uh, any moral credibility? The only way to do that is to submit to the will of the will of the person they are oppressing. So let me let me ask you this because this is, it's I want to kind of take off on a on, on somewhat of a of a tangent down a rabbit trail on this discussion here. I I I do a, I have another job that I work overnights for uh, as an on call kind of thing. So last night I was out working and I'm standing there doing my job and I'm kind of thinking through things and and kind of thinking mentally through to prepare for the interview here. And one of the things that that popped into my head was. A concept, and I don't know if any of you heard anybody else talk about this. I'm sure they have. They just not maybe thought about it in the in the same terminology as I have. But I, I asked myself, where did the inherent nobility in poverty come from? And and the, what I mean by that is, why is it that we think what that's because someone is poor, they are inherently noble, or because someone is a woman, they are inherently more honest than a than someone who's a man or because someone is this because someone is that where did this inherent nobility come from in whatever the class is like just because you're poor doesn't mean you are some you know noble individual who's just been taken advantage of by the system the reality might be yet you're poor because of the very fact that you are not living a noble kind of lifestyle is, I mean, have you, have you thought of on that level or, or, or thought or tried to kind of make any of those connections with the, with the social justice warrior crowd? 
So lucky for both of us, there is a guy named Eric Scott Raymond, who again is big in the open source world. And he has written about that kind of thing extensively. He has pointed out something that is called, I'm going to screw up this name, Gramscian damage or Gramscian damage. Okay. From the, uh, uh, the Marxist, uh, the philosopher would be too strong a word, the Marxist advocate, advocate, Antonio Gramsci or Antonio Gramsci. I don't know how to say the name properly. What ESR, Eric Scott Raymond, says about this is that we in America are suffering Gramscian damage from mimetic weapons launched at us by the Soviet Union as early as the 1910s and 1920s. And all of these ideas of the, the oppressor, the oppressed, and the oppressed having moral superiority all come out of that. Uh, I wish I had the link available to you right now. Uh, we can put it in the show notes if you like. But all of this stuff in the West, the idea that there are these nobler classes that are lower classes, were mimetic weapons intended to sap the moral character of America mm. in the in the essentially what turned out to be the Cold War, but started as basically the the, the communist uh, war again, the communist war for international socialism, uh, and that's where it all comes from. And again, I know that sounds conspiratorial. If you came up to somebody and says, "Hey, it's the communists. They're the <laughs> ones who did it all," you know, they're going to look at you. They're going to look at you sideways and try to get themselves a little distance between you. Uh, and yet, when you go back and you look at the writings of the day, and you look at what has happened since then, and how well all of those ideas m then match up with these ideas now, uh, it really makes a lot of sense that that is what happened. Uh, so although we won the Cold War in a military sense and in a, in a national sense, we lost it in an intellectual sense, in a mimetic sense. Mm -hmm. uh, our entire discourse in Western civilization has, again, been poisoned by these ideas. Uh, See, and, and so I've they've, even... They've gained a foothold. I've even blamed, you know, and, and somewhat jokingly, I've blamed Disney for this. You know, we, we watch all of these Disney movies as kids growing up. We watch, you know, Aladdin and, and all of these... I, I mean, pick a Disney movie, and there's, there's always this this sense of nobility in the poor and the sense of evil in the ruling class. There's no good kings. There's no, um, you know, noble princes. They're all crooks. And, and the, the only good people in, in the Robin Hood tale are Robin Hood, you know, and the people who are stealing from the rich and the sheriff of Nottingham and all of those people are evil. And any authority and any producer is is cons is considered to be evil and and I've done some study uh, recently into the Ukrainian kulaks of the early 1900s and, and and oh my goodness the 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 horror that comes from demonizing the pr producer is is I, I mean it, it, it we're talking literally deaths of millions and millions of people and 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 not that I'm saying that you know Linus leaving the and and stepping away from his project and and the social justice warrior crowd is going to lead to the to the the deaths of millions of people, but it's that ideology that gets us there. Am I am I tin hatting it here? I, I don't think you're tin hatting it here. I think there's a lot of factors in play. First of all, everyone loves an underdog story, especially Americans. Right. Everyone sees themselves as the underdog. Uh, so when you see that there are, when you see a movie about great forces being aligned against you and you're just trying to make your way and they all are richer and more powerful than you, you want to see something that tells you you can make it through, you can win. That's just natural, man. Um, but I do want to point out something, uh, a, a couple of other things there. Uh, number one is, I am not going to argue today that the politicians and the, the governments of the past were any somehow more corrupt than the polit political class we see in front of us today. Right. So to say that, you know, you're arguing against the rich, you're arguing against the powerful, rich and powerful, the government, uh, be, be darn sure I'm going to be arguing against a lot of that a right. lot of the time. Uh, you talk about uh, Robin Hood, uh, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. And again, this is, we have to remember this, the, what was going on at that time. Who were the rich in Robin Hood's days? They were the government. They were the kings. They mm. were the, you know, that kind of thing. So when Robin Hood was stealing from the rich, who was he stealing from? He was stealing from the government. He was giving the people back their taxes. Right. So Robin Hood is not necessarily an argument against producers per se. Right. Um, so those, the, 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 
thing to remember here is if we're going to be talking about producers in terms of uh, fairy tales and mythology, there's not a lot of background for that in fairy tales and mythology. The, the idea of a, pro of a productive, creative class uh, having some level of uh, uh, cachet in society uh, has is, first of all, relatively new, and they've always been hated. Mm. Um, again, we can we can talk about Ayn Rand there if we feel like right. <laughs> that sort of that that for me forms yeah. the foundation of those things. Uh, and I want to point out that that I want to point out further that Linus is a clearly a super creative dude. This system would not exist without him. There would have been nothing for people to uh, coalesce around to continue working on. Um, but at the same time, Linus is no Ayn Randian. He's, right. he's, he, he, he's a leftist dude, and uh, he's, I, my guess is that he has finally succumbed to the sort of the logical conclusions of a lot of leftist philosophy uh, in the sense that he has allowed the contributor covenant to be put in, be put in place. Now, one of the other one of the other things that I have have thought about as it relates to all of this is how I'm beginning to see so many of the various identity groups within the social justice movement, within the the leftist movement, kind of beginning to eat each other alive. And the example that I use regularly is. The, the transgender groups are, are now beginning to have somewhat of a, a, an internal civil war with the gay and lesbian groups because the transgender people are saying, well, this is a choice. This is, we, we choose to do this and you can't judge me for the choices that I make. I get to choose who I am. I get to choose my identity. I get to choose whether I'm a male or female and all of that kind of stuff. And a lot of the gay and lesbian groups are going, no, 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 wait a second. We're born this way. There's nothing we can do about it. You can't judge me because I had no choice in this matter. And there, I'm beginning to see, and that's just one one example. But I'm beginning to see this in a lot of different ways, where these these various groups are beginning to eat each other internally. It are, are you seeing that as well? So number one, the phrase you're looking for is leftist autophagy. Yeah, uh, where, where they do they do eat themselves alive. Um, what you're also seeing, is, but what that is an example of is, is intersectionality. And I'd mentioned this earlier. Right. On the oppressor-oppressed scale, there's not just one oppressor class and one oppressed class. There's ever more finely grained ways of, inter of, of oppressing someone else. And what you're seeing is an, out is an outgrowth of that. Uh, whether you are gay, lesbian, or non-binary, or you know, there's a whole list of, list of stuff there, uh, or if you're transgendered, uh, those are different intersections on which there can be oppression. And so what you're seeing is having the, these leftists, having uh, gotten rid of one kind of oppressor or you know, feeling like they have succeeded against one kind of oppressor, now in their worldview is all oppressor oppressed. So what we do is we go off the ne after the next kind of oppressor. Uh, and in this case, it happens to be the, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists uh, versus, the, versus the transgender folks. Mm. You know, speaking of the trans, the, the, uh, the, how, how did you word it? The, <laughs> the, 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 I think this is an actual, again, yeah. this is a real acronym, the TERFs, T-E-R-F, right. Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. There you go. Yeah. That, so speaking of those, and I, I've made this again, somewhat jokingly, but you know, like they say, there's always a little bit of truth in, in, in every joke. And, and essentially what I've said is that it's it's surprising to me that the feminists are not more outspoken against the whole transgender movement because essentially what we've proven over the last couple of years, specifically with Caitlin slash Bruce Jenner, is that we've proven when he was selected as woman of the year, and I say he intentionally, when he was selected as woman of the year, what we've proven is that men are even better at being women than women are. You know, and, so and I'm like gonna, say, it, I say that somewhat jokingly, but you get the you get with the point sure. that I'm trying to get to. You you'll also note that I'm not going to comment on that directly. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to make two I'm going to make two statements. Number one is that uh, it's my opinion that these transgender folks are actually suffering in some way. Yes. They have a, a, a they're they're they have got real yep. trouble. There's a genuine basis. mental delusion. They're, 
Well, I'm not. Well, I'm. So we can say mental delusion. It it has in fact been classed as a gender dysphoria is a mental illness. I think DSM five, DSM four called it an, uh, an illness. DSM five has different terminology for it. Right. But these are people who really are suffering in some fashion and are trying their best to come to grips with it. Right. Uh, the follow-on to that is just because they're trying to come to grips with it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to participate in their. Uh, in in their attempting to inflict their reality on on other people. Right. Um, the second thing is that Coraline Ada Emke is a is a trans is a trans woman. Uh, right. Born as a born as a man. Now you know, tr- you know transitioning to female. So your point about women being uh, or these trans men being better than better at being women trans women being better at women than Natural born women are, uh, is is well taken in the sense that the the real technical stuff that seems to be coming out is not does not appear primarily to be coming from people born as women transitioning to men, but from people born as men transitioning to women, which means that all of that underlying substructure uh, mentally is still there. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. That I feel like I rambled a little. No, bit it, it it does. I, I guess the, the I, I'm what's what's frustrating to me about all of this is I've said many many times I don't care if you are man woman black white red yellow green with purple polka dots it it, it doesn't matter to me uh, if if I am a good friend of mine is a female and she is a, a flooring installer, does carpeting and tile and all of that kind of stuff. And if I needed a flooring job done, she's the person I'm going to call because she's the best person at it that I know. And and I, I could care less if she's a woman. I could care less if she has red hair or, or anything like that. I just, I, I have a flooring project that I need done she can accomplish the job and she can accomplish it with a high level of quality and, and a, a high level of, of um, you know, speed and, and all of the things that I need if I'm going to get it done and at, at a good price. Now, professional I, excellence. Right, exactly. I also have a, a, a good friend who is a, an electrician and he is a man. And if I needed a job done where I needed some new light switches or some rewiring in my house or whatever it would, whatever it is, I would contact him. It has nothing to do with the fact that he's a man. It has everything to do with the fact that I know he's really, really good at his job and he will accomplish the task, like you say, with a high level of professional excellence. And so this, this is what concerns me is we would never say to the guy that's you know, doing heart surgery on our mom, that, you know, hey, you know, I, I know you're probably the best heart surgeon in the world, but I want a woman to do it. So I'm going to put my life, my, my mother's life or my grandmother's life or whoever's life at risk and take the, the surgeon who's okay over the best one in the world. We would never do that, yet we, we seem to be doing that in every other area that we can find. And it concerns me that one day we'll do that also with surgery and I will have to be, you know, forced to go to a doctor or forced to go for whatever thing that I need done because they're a woman, because they're a transgender, this, because they're race, because of whatever. And I may get shoddy work done. And in the end, it could cost me my life. And, and, and I know that's maybe taking the slippery slope argument a little bit farther than, than necessary, but it's hard to, it's hard to not go down that road. So I, I will agree with you that that is probably a that is for now a, uh, a an argument too far. Right. But I but I will say this: uh, the basis on which we want to make our decisions, at least people like me want to make the decisions, is like you just said: is this the best person available to be doing this, regardless of any other personally identifiable characteristics? Uh, are they going to be doing well for the thing that I want done well. And everything else needs to be secondary. Uh, to swap out, uh, shall we say, a merit-based system of discrimination for a, a, a personal identity form of discrimination strikes me as 
uh, I, going on the wrong set of decision principles. Uh, as you said, I don't care uh, whether you're a man or a woman. I don't care if you're trans or, or, or non-trans. I don't care if you're straight or gay. It doesn't matter to me when we are talking in terms of my coding projects. What I care about right. is that you have put into place either the best solution available or a reasonably good solution that can be worked on thereafter by other people who come along. Uh, it, it, it doesn't matter in terms of the project, what your identity is. To make your identity uh, uh, superior, to, to make your work product subordinate to the person producing it uh, strikes me as backwards. Yeah. Well, then here's here's the other side of that kind of slippery slope argument, and I usually try to avoid the the slippery slope stuff. But well, the, so to to be clear, a slippery slope argument is a logical fallacy. Right. If we were working with formal logic, you would be wrong to bring it up. Right. But we're not talking about l formal logic. We're right. talking about how people interact with each other. When someone says to you, "This is my goal." It's no longer a slippery slope. You can <laughs> look back and see yeah. what has happened. Yeah. It is predictable. It's yeah. no longer a slippery slope fallacy. So, so here's here's the next you know progression of that discussion. Then is how long? Because my daughter's 21 years old. She'll be 22 in a couple of weeks. And her goal in life, she wants to be a mom. She loves kids. She has no desire to, you know, to she's she's working on a piano performance degree because she loves teaching piano to little kids and and that's her job already and loves doing all that kind of stuff. And she loves children and wants her, like her whole dream in life. She wants to be a mom and she wants to have a bunch of kids and, and be a, you know, a stay at home mom and, and teach piano out of her home. That's like her, that's her dream. She doesn't want to be the president. She didn't want to be a, a scientist or anything like that. She just loves kids. And so the, the question then becomes how long do we, are we away from, or how far away from are we as it relates to someone coming along as she joins or tries to go to college or her children decide to go to college one day and they are told, we need female doctors and we don't care that you want to be a musician. We don't care that you want to be a mathematician or an English teacher. We need doctors. So the government says you're going to be a doctor because we need women doctors. There's not enough of them or we need women this or we need men that or whatever. And we no longer get a choice to to um, decide our own destiny. And again, I get that that's maybe, like you say, an argument too far, but that's the other side of this that concerns me is, I mean, we're, how fast are we rushing towards 1984? So that is less of a 1984 situation than an anthem situation. Uh, again, that's from Ayn Rand. That yep. I think it's the first Ayn Rand book that I read. Uh, where you're, you are put into a profession, regardless of what your own personal desires or talents are. I, again, I think that's, an argument too far. Talk to me again in 20 years. We'll see how that prediction mm. plays out. Well, and we're seeing that we're seeing that in some of the Hollywood stuff now, right? The, the the people who are pushing for this kind of thing are then making movies railing against it. Was it I Am Number Four or or whatever it was that I can't even remember the name of the movie now that you know mm. she, there's the there's the the four different classes of people you know and and the one little girl gets picked for or whatever class of people and decides that nobody wants to be in these classes of people anymore. Well, it's exactly what this, this group is pushing towards. And not just this group, but I mean the, the social justice movement in general, I guess is maybe more accurate. Yeah. I, I, I don't see that. I don't see that specifically with the social justice movement. Um, there may be other uh, political actors in the field that would be pushing for that kind of thing. Okay. Um, but I don't see that particular thing growing out of social justice right now. Um, but again, I, I can't say right. for sure. So, so for the people that are, as we kind of wrap up here, is, is for the people that are, are hearing this and are, are listening to the discussion here, what do we do? How do we, how do we, how do we stop this kind of movement, because as you said, as a, as a father of a daughter and a son, I have one of each and I want my daughter to have every opportunity to success and, and to be uh, excellent in whatever field she chooses, whether it's, you know, being a mom or if she decides later down the road that she does want to be a doctor, whatever, I want her to have every opportunity to be as successful as possible. But at the same time, <sighs> How do we how do we prevent that without just straight up becoming, you know, discriminatory? 
So the, the first thing is that uh, if you want to do something and you've got the particular talent and desire to pull it off, I agree you should not be prevented from pursuing it, uh, certainly not by, by government dictates, certainly not by uh, uh, formal rules that, or, or right. laws that will prevent you from doing it by force. Um, so I'm against the idea of preemptively saying you're not allowed to do X. Uh, I will say that sometimes people want to do X merely because it flies in the face of convention, mm. not because they're actually good at it. Right. Uh, and in those cases, I, I think they're working at odds. They're working against the people who actually want to do X and are actually good at it. Right. Um, so if your daughter, for example, or my daughter, uh, decides later in life that they don't want to be, uh, that they want to be a doctor, they want to be a program, whatever, uh, there should be no formal restriction in place from doing so. Uh, but we also need to recognize that if you are going into a field, for example, nursing, that is dominated by people of a sex that you are not, for example, you know, it's primarily primarily females in nursing, yeah. and you want to make you're a man, you want to go into the breeding house, there should be no formal restriction against you there. But at the same time, you need to recognize you're going into a particular kind of culture that already exists. You're going to particular, into a particular kind of society that already exists, and you are going to need to conform yourself to that pre-existing culture. Um, it's not necessarily a sign that there is something wrong with it, that it is not like you want it to be. You're the one who wants to be there. You're the one who needs to conform to it. Uh, enough. You need to make uh, if you if you find ways of adjusting it later on after you have been in the community in that community for a while that other people are accepting of. You know that you get to do that then. But your primary the primary thing you have to do is adjust yourself to the world that you want to put yourself into. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. It, it's it's uh, and the opposite is what's is essentially what's happening is that's I yes I we're agree. we're being told that the the industry has to conform itself to me as opposed to me conforming myself to the industry. Yes. And that's, it, it's again, it's an oversimplification, but yeah, no, it makes absolute sense. So Paul, I, I appreciate your time and, and, and I really appreciate your, your expertise and, and willingness to talk about this because oftentimes just speaking up about this stuff, I mean, doing a radio show three hours a day on the terrestrial side, I've been accused of all kinds of horrifying things and, and called all kinds of terrible names and, and had people literally threaten um, my wife and my family um, because of the things I've talked about. So I really appreciate your willingness to speak up and, and, and share about these, these various issues. So I, I guess the, the kind of the last question is for the regular Joe, um, what do we do? Do we just sit back and watch? Do we, do we get active and, and, because not everybody wants to be an activist, right? Nobody wants, a, a lot of people just want to go to work and do their job and be left alone. I, I completely agree. Most people are, they, they don't they don't want to have to deal with this. Um, they're they're in, in, in a lot of ways, they're indifferent to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and your regular Joe, again, if we're talking about regular Joe, regular Joe is not a deep into Linux. Re regular right. Joe is not deep into PHP or any programming language or anything like that. Regular Joe just wants to go do his work, go home, be left alone. Um so, but, so for people who are already involved in these communities, in, in the open source communities, whether it's Linux or PHP or something else, uh, I, I need to point out that it's going to come for you one way or another. You won't be allowed, you, what you want to do is sit back and say, you know what, I want people to nice, but I don't, I want people to be nice, but I don't particularly care about this battle. I don't, I don't want to be involved in it. I don't care one way or another. You know, whatever you all want, that's fine. You're not going to be allowed to not care eventually. Mm -hmm. the, the Coraline has said, look, if you're not, has said essentially, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not helping me in my social justice cause, then you are preventing me from succeeding in my social justice cause, and I am going to walk all over you. That's a near quote. I will be able to find a, a, a the, the Twitter for that right. if you want. Um, so you're not going to be allowed to not care. You're going to have to pick a side one way or another, sooner or later. And, and I, I hate that. I don't want to deal with any of that. Right. I want to write the code. I want to produce my stuff. I want to get my job done and not have to think about politics in an open source arena. I've got to think about politics in, in other places 
having good boundaries, you know, good fences make good neighbors, there should be a boundary around this where politics is for a different arena and open source is just open source. But I got bad news. If you're in a gunfight, you're going to have to have a gun. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in if you're in a religious war, you've got to have a religion. And I hate politics, but in a political battle, you're going to need some politics. You're yeah. going to have to start bringing them because it has been brought to you. If you are not fighting back in some way, however small, then you're going to get rolled over. Mm -hmm. uh, now, again, if you're a social justice fan, then things are great for you yeah. right now. Yeah. Everything is proceeding on schedule. But if you think that you ought to be able to speak freely in other arenas besides your own open source project and not have your freedom of speech in those other arenas used against you as leverage to eject you from your open source project, the things that you need to do primarily are to speak out against this stuff. And don't let the social justice advocates have the illusion that they are unopposed on this stuff. Uh, again, I, I hate this kind of politics. It's, it's a political battle, and I, I hate this kind of conflict where there should not be this kind of conflict but you have to treat that you have to treat your involvement as a defensive action so number one speak up uh number two if you are in an open source project that you run yourself don't accept the contributor covenant uh put a different one in place that uh, enables merit over political identity uh you, you know, again this is a freedom of speech issue uh, we have to push back in some fashion. Another way of pushing back is if you are in a project that has adopted the contributor covenant, stop volunteering for it. Stop donating the money. Stop mm. contributing stuff for free. And when you stop, point out that it's because this covenant has been put in place. That is, it's against free speech. It's against the idea of a free and open society. Um, no one is coming to save us here. No right. one is coming to save you. You're going to have to do this yourself. And the longer you wait, the more it looks like you agree with it, and the more that inertia will be used against you. Well, I tell you, I, I, I will, I've been looking through your website here the last couple of days, and I have been kind of digging into some of this and, and looking at some of the links that you have. One of the things that you've got on your website is a social justice attack survival guide. Uh, and I'll have I'm going to be putting a bunch of these links to the in the show notes for people to to look at. Um, Paul, before I let you go, if you could do me a favor and shoot me an email with some of the other links that you've mentioned today, and I'll get those in the show notes for folks to uh, to look at as well. I also plan to put a, a link to the the code of conduct, the uh, you know the contributors code of conduct in uh, as well in the show notes to let people see what what's actually there. Um, any any last minute advice for for the folks before we let you go? Uh, no, nothing I can think of uh, other than to say that, you know, that, that if you don't, this is, a, this is basically a freedom of speech issue. Your freedom yep. of speech is under attack. Uh, and people say that if you, uh, you, you should be able to speak freely, but there are going to be consequences for your speech. And so you have to ask yourself, what are the proper consequences for speech? Mm. Is it that, uh, if I, if I speak in some way that is politically against someone of someone that is against someone else's politics what are the proper consequences for me having spoken out politically is it to find me in the street and punch me right is it to burn down my house yeah is it to call up my employer and say you know did you know that paul said something that that could be construed as racist is that really the kind of person you want working for you mm. and then get fired because of it are those the proper consequences for speech no right the proper consequences for speech are opposing speech not incitements to action. Mm. So when people tell you that, you know, when if you tell people this is a freedom of speech issue and they say, well, you get freedom of speech, but you don't get freedom from consequences, think about the kind of consequences they're trying right. to impose on you. Yeah, it's and true. Let that, and let that guide your action. It's, yeah, it's true that we are not we are not free from consequences, but but we are we should be free from inappropriate consequences. I, again, completely agreed. In a free right. and open society. We understand that other people have freedom of speech to say things that we very much disagree with, but they get to say them. We should not be afraid of other people's liberty to speak. In a free and open society, we all understand that that's going to happen. Yeah. These are not people who believe in a free and open society. These are people who believe that they should be socially dominant, not merely socially equal. Right. 
need to keep that in mind. Well, Paul, as I said uh, several times now, I should probably just let you go. I, I could sit here and talk about this kind of stuff all day long, and I know you've got other things to do, and I've got to prepare for a, uh, a radio show as well. So thank you once again for your time, and, and I absolutely look forward to, uh, to seeing you again soon. Same here. Thanks a lot. Paul, thank you, and we'll talk to you later, man. So that is my interview with Paul M. Jones, and it pretty much takes up the time that we've got for today. There's a lot more that I want to talk about in this. One of the things that I was thinking about during that interview and and during the uh, discussions that I've had on this topic recently is... As a former pastor, this is, and I don't mean this to be a religious thing, and, and if you're not a religious person, fine, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, but as a former pastor, that's kind of, my, kind of my, my view of the world. It's kind of the way I see things and the way I approach discussions. I, I read a passage in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, and it says, None of you should be looking out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. And as I read that passage, I I began to wonder, I thought, how can I look out for the interests of others if I am living in poverty? It seems to me that my responsibility to be successful, that it is my responsibility to be successful, if for no other reason than to be able to be generous. And and so I'm not entirely certain what to do with that, and, and I've got some more processing to do with that and some more studying on that particular issue. But it seems to me that if I believe that what I believe is really real about Christianity, then it seems to me that it is incumbent upon me to be as financially successful as possible so that I can be as generous as possible. Not just so I can live in a big house and have a fancy car, but that I can be as generous as I possibly can to help those in need. And it, and it is not noble, as we talked about with Paul Jones, it is not noble to be, pov- to be living in poverty. It is not inherently noble to be broke. And, and it doesn't make me a better person. In fact, if I am living in poverty simply because I'm not putting forth the effort. Now, there's a lot of reasons we end up in poverty, and I don't want to get down, go down that road. But it, if, if I am living in poverty simply because I am unwilling to put in the effort it takes to be successful or because of my bad behavior or my greediness or, or whatever it is that, that makes me um, financially unstable, if you will, then I am shirking my responsibility to, to be looking out for the interests of others. So we'll end it with that today, and the Schmidt Show continues. If you want to find us, there's all kinds of ways to do that. I'm on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Schmidt Show. I'm on Twitter. My handle there is at the Schmidt Show. I'm on all kinds of other platforms. I'm on Instagram. I've only posted like one or two things there on Instagram before. Um, I'm, I think I'm on Snapchat under the Schmidt Show as well. Um, so all kinds of ways to get a hold of me and all kinds of ways to interact with the show. As I've mentioned several times, the phone number 866-766-1776. And uh, we are hoping as the show continues to grow, we're still pretty small, um, but as the show continues to grow that we will have um, – callers and things joining us live as we as we broadcast the show or 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 internet cast the show if you will um and so uh also as i've said before this this project is costing me a little bit of money um and i want to do more to bring more content but as it stands right now, I've already got two other full-time jobs that I work to uh, pay the bills and take care of my family, and and so um, there are there are some financial needs uh, to to necessary to to make the show happen and and to expand the content more than once a week. And so, if you want to support us, go to our Patreon page. It's just go to Patreon and search the Schmidt Show. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to sit here and beg for money. I, 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 you know, it's not. My point in this is not to be rich and and famous. It's I, I, I have a message that I want to share with people, but getting that out costs money. And you know, as I just said, I want to find ways to be financially successful so that I can be more generous. So I'm, I'm not really sure how that's going to look. Um, you know, I don't know that that I, I can commit to saying, you know, fifty percent of 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 my Patreon after 
costs will go to charities or, or whatever. I, I don't know what that looks like. I haven't really thought that through yet. Um, but if you, if you do want to support the show, please go to Patreon, check that out. And, um, yeah, that's where we're at. With that, the Schmidt Show is uh, is pretty well done for today. And um, we are going to be back next week. We're going to talk a little bit, hopefully, about the Kavanaugh confirmation or lack thereof. We'll talk about all of that stuff um, and, and get a little bit more into current news. I, I try to, with the podcast, because I only get one a week right now, I try not to focus on just a, a, a single story. I would rather talk about the overarching issues so that when you see the news yourself, you are able to um, assess your views and, and use your lens to kind of determine um, what it is that you need to know about the, that particular item. We'll see you next week on the Schmidt Show podcast. Oh,